Thanks, Tim. All right. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, I'm using a remote, so uh, now we'll see if I really know how to use it. Okay. So tonight we're looking at uh, two passages, First uh, Peter 1, 20 to 25, and First Peter 2, uh, 1 to 3. Um, I guess we'll uh, we'll start with the, uh, the the first passage, and then we'll uh, we'll go verse by verse from that point on. So here we go. Ah, oh, don't know if you can read that, but I can't. So I'll read it off my uh, my notes. Uh, Since you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth, for a sincere love of the brothers and sisters. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. And that's the end of verse 24, 25, sorry. So going back to verse 22, starting in verse 22, uh, Peter describes, uh, basically he's listing four different actions here for us. The first one being, obey the truth. The second being, purify your souls. The third one, love the brothers and sisters. And the fourth one, love fervently. So going to the first one, obey the truth. What does Peter mean by obey the truth, by obedience to the truth? He doesn't say just believe in it. He wants us to obey it. What truth is he talking about? Uh, in this case, we have to look at the previous verses for context, and I'm going to pull up verses 18 to 21, uh, which we've seen last week. I've compacted these verses a little bit because um, we've already gone through them last week. So this is how I, I've cut it down to. Um, starting at verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, who through him are believers in God, who raised them from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So through him, his death on the cross, we have been redeemed. Our sins have been paid in full because when we believe, we become Christians. When we become Christians, we become obedient to Christ. There's more to than just believing. There's a conversion process that takes place because we're now in Christ. Our faith and hope in God. Redemption is life-changing. We become obedient to Christ. 
because we become obedient to Christ. Paul describes this transformation in Romans, whoops, sorry, Romans 6, uh, verse 3 to 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. To believe in Christ's death and resurrection means we've buried the old. That's the death part. And become a new creation, the resurrection part. To walk in this newness of life, though, we must purify our souls after we come to faith. We do it in obedience, as Paul just described. Purify your souls. John writes in 1 John 3, verse 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. We accomplish this by an inner purification of the soul that precedes the love that follows in this verse. To purify the soul is to purify the heart. Physically speaking, when the heart is not pure, it is unhealthy. It doesn't function properly. As a result, the body gets sick. Used as a metaphor, when the heart is impure, so is the body spiritually, or the soul. Jeremiah says in 17.9, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is de desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Proverbs 4.23, oops, we, uh, it says, watch your heart, uh, sorry, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it, for the springs of life. We have a sick heart that is not compatible with true love. We must purify it. Just like we work out to maintain a healthy heart, to maintain a healthy life, we gotta do the same spiritually. Having purified the souls, we now show a sincere love for the brothers and sisters. But Peter takes it one step further. He wants us to love fervently, which means to be passionate about our love towards others. Uh, in practical terms, we read how that love showed, its, showed itself with the early church. In Acts 4, uh, 32 to 35, this is how, what it reads. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring them, bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' seat. 
and they would be distributed to each to the extent that any had need. Not suggesting we do that today, the early church was a different time. The apostles are no longer here, and we're not starting an early church. But love for the brothers and sisters ought not to have changed 2,000 years later. As believers in Christ, we're part of God's family, a bond that will bind us eternally because we have believed God's plan of redemption for his son, Jesus. We believe God gave him up for us to propitiate for our sins. We believe he died individually for each one of us because God felt we were each worthy of that sacrifice. John writes, when it comes to loving the brothers and sisters, in 1 John 4, 7 to 11, Beloved, let's love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that God has sent his only son into the world, so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And when it comes to fervent love, the Lord ups it another level, he says, in John 13, 34 to 35, the Lord says, I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And in John 15, 12, 13, this is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love, uh, greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friends. But we can only live with, uh, sorry, we, but we can only love this way because for you who have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. This is the same born again idea that the Lord used in John chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus. The physical seed that brought human life and with its sin, will die in its physical form. We need to be born again with a spiritual, spiritual seed that will never die. The perishable or cor corruptible seed is buried with Christ into his death 
and the imperishable or incorruptible seed is planted to take root in our hearts and consequently to grow in our love for others. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 53-54, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable puts on the imperishable, and this mortal, mortal put, puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. We're born in a natural perishable state with a spirit, but not yet born again of the imperishable. The natural will perish, but when we put on the imperishable, we ought to live and love from an eternal perspective. We have become immortal, spiritually speaking, of course. Peter then wraps up these two verses 22-23, by saying, we do all that by applying the living and enduring word of God. God has given us his book to apply to our lives. Of course, in those days, they didn't have a book like we do today. God's word was proclaimed for teaching and the spoken word. In Acts 11, we read how the early church got started in Antioch. And in verse 26, it says, and for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers of people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Peter now quotes Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass, and in all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is the idea that our present lives on on this earth is transitory. Peter starts his epistle by referring to his audience as strangers. Some versions translate it as foreigners or pilgrims because ultimately this earth is not our final destination. God is permanent and eternal, and on this earth we're not. We're simply on a journey. Life was no doubt difficult for the early Christians during Peter's time. Back in those days, persecution was great. Being a Christian could have been a matter of life or death, by crucifixion or fed to the lions not something you'd look forward to. But Peter wrote to them to give them hope, a living hope, with a citizenship that belongs in heaven. Finally, the word of the, the, word of the Lord endures forever because God is forever. His written word gives us a picture of what was, what is, and what is to come. According to biblical scholars, the Bible has endured about 3,500 to 4,000 years. Consider the ancient times it was written in and the turbulent times that we've seen in the last 4,000 years. 
It is incredible that God's word has survived and been preserved as complete as it is. The word of the Lord endures because man alone could not have written this book, wrote about the prophecies in it, and kept it alive to this day solely on human effort. That pretty much wraps up the first passage, um, 22 to 25, chapter one. So now we'll move on to chapter two. Verse one says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Sorry, that, that was just verse one. Therefore, Peter just ended the previous chapter with fervent love for the brothers and sisters. Now he goes on to state what not to do. Not to the brothers and sisters, not to anyone. This is how our heart ought to respond by laying aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. You'll note how Peter interjects all in that verse. It's because he wants us to lay aside all of it, not just some of it. These can happen more subtly than you think. The common denominator in these qualities, unfortunately, is there's an element of perceived gain for self which is why our sinful nature is drawn to them. And the, the Bible is full of stories of these qualities we do not want to have because the Bible does expose man's sinfulness. So we'll start with the first one, malice. So malice is a desire to cause pain, injury, or distress to another. Picking up a story in Matthew 26, uh, verse three to five. Um, at that time, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the courtyard of a high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to arrest Jesus covertly and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. This is first degree malice to premeditate murdering someone and try to get away with it. That's why we try to do it in secret. But ill will doesn't have to be this extreme. In our culture, there's a retaliation mindset. You hurt me, I'll hurt you back kind of thing towards someone who has personally or maybe not even personally offended you. We do it because we think it's, gonna, it's going to make us feel better. But Jesus doesn't think like that. He says, love your enemies, forgive them. Now we don't want to confuse this with seeking justice. Justice, ju sorry, justice is there for a reason, but that's on another subject altogether. We do have laws and a penal system that will deal with that. Deceit is the act of causing someone to accept as true or valid what is false or invalid. 
in Genesis 3, we've got the greatest deceiver of all time, Satan himself disguised as a serpent. And it reads, Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said, You shall not eat from any tree of a garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of a garden we may eat, but from the fruit of a tree which is in the middle of a garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Here the serpent created a falsehood, because he basically countered what God said. Did God really say? Yes, God said that. You certainly will not die. Well, we know we certainly will die. And of course, we cannot become like God. All this ultimately meant disobedience to God. To deceive is to be dishonest, to lack integrity. But deceit can also happen if the act or the act we're, we're, we're doing causes us to mislead on purpose because what we're saying is still true, but it doesn't provide a complete picture because there's a personal stake involved. Like maybe you'll, 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 you will lose your job out of it if all the facts are known. That is deceit as well. Partial truth. It doesn't all, also doesn't always mean you have to tell everything to everyone. We have to look at the context. And I like the, the example of Jesus interacting with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Jesus said to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. Sorry, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. Jesus didn't say you answered incorrectly because she was within her right to reply the way she did. Of course, she didn't know that she was talking to the Lord. Next is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending to be one, what one is not or to believe what one does not believe. In Matthew 26, um, 14, 16, um, we pick up the story of Judas. Uh, then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they set out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he looked, he looked for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. And verse 25, and Judas, who was betraying him, being the Lord, surely said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. To be a hypocrite can mean lying about a situation as in Judas's case here. But we can also put on a mask Figuratively speaking, to hide our true feelings. 
course, we ought to be humble and respectful. We don't want to say or do things that are hurtful just because that's how we feel. We have to discern our thoughts and actions. We only become hypocrites when we know deep down how we feel, yet project a different or opposite view of those feelings. Sometimes the hypocrisy can be in plain view when we believe something but act in opposite to it in plain view for others to see. Envy is a feeling of discontent with regard to another's advantage, success, or possession. In 2 Samuel 11, uh, uh, two to four, uh, Second Samuel 11, sorry, 2 to 4, uh, now at evening time, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of a king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent servants, servants and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba? Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and had her brought and when she came to him, he slept with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Envy is comparing to what others have or covet what others have that we don't have and can't have. Although in this story, David got his way because he was king after all. This adultery caused him a lot of grief, and he suffered and paid for the consequences of that sin. For the average person, we envy because we can't have it. Otherwise, if we could, then it would no longer be envy, because we can just go ahead and get it. Envy only causes unhappiness because it is a constant reminder how someone else has it better than you. Slander, a false spoken statement about someone which da damages that person's reputation. We pick up another story on, in, in Matthew 26, verse 59 to 61. Uh, now the chief priests and the entire council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. In this story, having trouble finding false witnesses, the best they could come up with is a couple of witnesses to distort the truth. Jesus didn't say he was going to physically destroy and rebuild the temple but was referring to his body as a temple and was going to raise it on the third day, predicting his death and resurrection. They distorted the truth to bring down Jesus' credibility. Today, there's so much information going around, there's no lack of people bashing each other and discrediting each other. Slander is similar to malice because it is one person's intention to hurt the other person. 
Peter says we ought to be rid of all these qualities because they are the opposite of godly living. Instead, sorry, instead we should be living by the fruit of a spirit, by the power of God's spirit who dwells in us. He writes later in Second Peter 1, uh, verse 3, For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. In Galatians 5.22, Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit. Starting with love and ending with self-control. Control of our thoughts and actions is what enables us to be rid of these qualities. But it starts with love. Paul describes love like this in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 47. Love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous. Love does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act disgracefully, it does not seek its own benefit, it is not provoked, does not keep an account of the wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice, rejoices with the truth. It keeps every confidence. It believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And now to the last two verses. I am almost done. And like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. It's been a while since uh, my kids were babies, but what I seem to recall is babies will let you know when they're hungry. They crave for that milk and nourishment instinctively. Peter says we should do the same when it comes to God's word, to crave it in the same way as babies do milk. Babies don't know they need the milk to grow and survive. They just know they need it. As babies, it is this milk that bonds mother and baby. Peter says we in the same way is how we start bonding with God. By longing for the pure milk of the word. It's what we need to grow in our newfound faith as a newborn. And as we start to feed ourselves on the word, we come to grow in respect to our salvation. Babies don't get tired of drinking that milk, nor should we tire of desiring the milk of the word. Physically, we start out as newborn. As we get older, we continue to need nourishment. It's no different when it comes to God's word. Ultimately, to appreciate what our salvation means, what God has done for us, to taste the kindness of the Lord, his amazing grace and mercy. Paul writes it like this in Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says to work it out, not work for it. 
It's very black and white. A gift is given, given and received freely. But we receive it with a good fear and, and trembling in reverence to God. 